Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. That will be our sermon text for this morning. We've been in the Gospel of John for a few weeks now, and we've made it to about the middle of John, chapter 1. Before I read that text for us, let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would take our hearts, uh, that you would take our our minds, that you would take our thoughts, that you would take all that we are and that you would consecrate them, set them apart for you, that everything that we think and feel and desire and say and do would be uh, for you and to your glory. And we pray, Father, that you would use your word to sanctify us, that you would use your word to set us apart, that you would use your word to transform us into the image of Jesus. We pray that you would do that even this morning as we hear your word. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would speak uh, and that you would be glorified, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Introductions only happen once. Uh, That's not always true with me, of course, because I have such a terrible memory. Sometimes I meet people for the first time every day. Uh, But in general, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And first impressions are important you are setting the groundwork for a lifelong relationship. 
Sometimes someone else makes the introduction, of course. You know, John, this is Marie. She's an artist. Marie, this is John. He grew up on a farm in Wichita. Uh, I, I think you'll get along because you both like spotted cows or whatever. Well, in our text this morning, uh, John the Baptist introduces Jesus to the world and, of course, to us. It's no small role. And so we'll take a look at what John did, why it matters, and how to respond. And we'll actually spend the majority of our time there. So what John did, why it matters, and how to respond. First, what John did. John the Baptist, I don't know if, if you have noticed, he's actually a really fascinating character. He plays an important role in the beginning of each of the four Gospels, and then he quickly fades into the background before he disappears altogether. Mark begins with John the Baptist in verse 2 of his Gospel. Luke begins his Gospel with lengthy stories of the announcement of John's birth and then the birth itself, and weaves that into the announcement and birth of Jesus. And what all this shows is that the biblical writers considered John the Baptist's work important. Now think about it. Only two Gospels record the birth of Jesus, but all four record the witness of John the Baptist. I find that fascinating. I would have done it the other way around. Why is this guy so important? Well, let's look at what John the Evangelist, the son of Zebedee, the writer of the Gospel tells us about John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah, the priest. We have to keep those two distinct, right? So we're talking, what does John, uh, John the writer of the gospel, tell tell us about John the Baptist? The story begins with, this is the testimony of John. It's a rather formal statement there in verse 19. And if we were writing the book today, one commentator pointed out that it would have been a subheading, right? This, This is the testimony of John setting apart this section of the story that follows the testimony of John the Baptist. Uh, Verse 19 tells us that certain priests and Levites were sent from Jerusalem, that is, from the Jewish leaders, and they come asking John, who are you? Now, to understand that question, we have to remember a couple of things here. First, John himself is actually the son of a priest, and yet he seems to have forsaken the, the formal official priesthood himself, and he goes out into the wilderness ceremonially washing people with a kind of unofficial purification ritual, baptism. It looks like John has gone rogue. He's a rogue priest. And when they ask him, who are you? They are asking, what gives you the right to perform these ritual purifications? That's the role of the temple and of the priesthood, uh, not rogue priests doing their own thing in the desert. The question is really a question of authority. Who do you think you are? And there are three possibilities in their minds of who John might be. Uh, He might be the Christ, that is the Messiah who was to come. The Messiah was the hoped-for king in the line of David who would come and put things right. He might be Elijah. Uh, God promised in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Elijah is supposed to come preaching repentance, turning hearts back to God. So they wonder, is John Elijah? Or John might be the prophet, 
right? Not, not a prophet, but, but a specific prophet mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. And this is a, a famous passage where Moses predicts another like him to come. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, uh, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, or from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. See, there was this expectation that God would send Elijah or the prophet and ultimately the Messiah in order to save and deliver his people. And so the priests and the Levites come from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they're asking John, who do you think you are? And John's answer is, I'm not the Christ, and I am not Elijah, and I am not the prophet. Uh, Now, interestingly, uh, Jesus will say in another gospel that if people can understand it, John is Elijah. And so you might wonder, okay, why does John say he's not Elijah, but Jesus says he is Elijah? And I think the difference there is Jesus is saying John comes in the office of Elijah or in the role of Elijah Elijah, or to perform the function of Elijah. But John is here denying that he is Elijah. See, people thought Elijah himself would come back. You may remember Elijah didn't die in the normal way in the Old Testament, and so people thought Elijah's going to come back himself. And John's saying, no, that's, that's not me. I'm John the Baptist. I'm not Elijah. Uh, and so uh, they then ask, okay, fine, if you're not the Messiah and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet, who are you? <laughs> they demand. We can't, we can't come back saying who you aren't. We need to come back saying who you are. Who do you think you are? And in verse 23, John says this, He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Uh, John quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, as if to say, I'm none of those people you are expecting, but, but God's word has commissioned me to this task. I have been appointed to call people to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, at least some of this official delegation from Jerusalem were Pharisees, and they, they seem to ask a follow-up question. Okay, if you aren't any of these great people, what do you think you're doing? I mean, why are you baptizing? If you're not Elijah and you're not the Messiah and you're not the prophet, what, what are you doing? And Why are you doing it? And this question, again, it continues to be about authority in one sense, but it adds this thought. Uh, if, if Elijah and the prophet and the Messiah have not come then why this crazy end times ritual? Why are you doing what you're doing in the desert? Why are you preparing people for the coming judgment if you yourself have said you're not one of those special harbingers of that judgment? And this is a question not just about the authority of John's actions, but about the timing of it. What are you doing if the prophet hasn't come? What are you doing if the Messiah hasn't come? What are you doing if Elijah hasn't come. And John's answer in verses 26 and 27, of course, is it's true, I'm nobody special. All I do is perform ritual purification, but someone greater than me is here. I'm not the end times figure, but he is here. He is so much greater than me, I'm not worthy to untie his shoe. Now, according to to the commentator D.A. Carson, in, in the context of that society, a student, a student, was expected to do for his teacher whatever a slave would do except take off his shoes. Slaves took off shoes. But notice what John says. He is not worthy to take off Jesus' shoe. What he's saying is he's not worthy to be a slave of this one who comes after him. 
John is not some uh, great end times figure, but, but someone has come, he's saying. Something is about to happen, and John's ministry is preparation for that. Now, the next day, John sees Jesus, and John begins to answer a new question, which is, who is this one who is greater than John? It it appears the delegation, they weren't really interested in that question. Uh, They were content with John's answer. He's nobody special, but somebody greater was there. Okay, fine. So they leave the picture. But John's not done. He wants us to know who that someone greater is and what he came to do. And so in verse 29, the next day, John sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, this is him. This is the one I've been talking about. This is why I came, to make him known. How does John know it's him? He admits in verse 31, I myself did not know him. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't know Jesus at all. They were actually cousins. But he didn't know that Jesus was the Christ. But he says in verse 33, God had given him a sign. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what John saw. He saw heaven opened and the Spirit descend like a dove and rest on Jesus God gave him the sign. He saw the sign. Now he is testifying to what he heard and saw. This is him. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. The delegation asked John a few questions. Who do you think you are? What are you doing? Why now? What's going on? John answers one more question. Who is this one to come? And he points us to Jesus. But we could even ask a further question of the text. Why? Why does John say these things? What does he want people to do? What is his intended response? What is the goal of John's actions? And the answer is John wants people to repent and believe. He is baptizing, we are told explicitly in the other gospels, with a baptism of repentance. John wants people to repent of their sin and then look to and believe in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So so that's what John did. He came, he saw, he testified to what he saw. He testified to who Jesus was. Why does it matter? Uh, John did something that no one else on the planet has or ever can do. Uh, This moment here in John 1 is like no other in history. What John does is actually unrepeatable. Think about it. John the Baptist introduces the world to Jesus. Never again will anything quite like this happen. Oh, oh, you and I can introduce individuals to Jesus, and we should do that. But no one does what John did. For the first time in human history, he says to the world, this is the Christ. John identifies who the Messiah is. Now, John the evangelist, the writer of the gospel, uh, says, uh, remember verse 19, this is the testimony of John. Testimony is a technical, legal term. John is acting uh, as a witness. John the Baptist is acting like a witness at a crime scene, uh, you know, who identifies the criminal for the court. Uh, You you know that moment in crime TV shows where the lawyer says, is that person in the room today, and can you point him out to the court? And the witness often timidly says, well, that's the man right there. That's John's fundamental, unrepeatable role. Uh, Another way of putting it is John lets the cat out of the bag. 
Now think about it. Before that, Jesus had lived for 30 years in complete obscurity. Nobody had any idea who he was. He was a carpenter. That's all. Nobody special. But John says, behold, the Lamb of God. It's not that Jesus was hiding, but now the secret is out. Why does John's work matter? Uh, For one, he identifies Jesus uh, for who he is. He identifies who is the Messiah based on the sign given to him by the Father. There there is a completely irreverent movie, uh, a Monty Python movie, so you already know it's irreverent, right? But a completely irreverent Monty Python movie called The Life of Brian, where one Brian gets mistaken for the Messiah. Spoiler alert, right? In the end, he gets crucified as such. John's role, John the Baptist's role, is to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is him, he's saying. This is the one I've been talking about. Make no mistake, right? This is the Messiah. This is why I came, he says in verse 31. For this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, by the time John the Evangelist is writing, John the Baptist, of course, was dead, but he had already done his identifying work. And some of his disciples, we will see in some of the next verses, uh, become Jesus' disciples. And they pick up his testimony and eventually write the New Testament, which is how we can know and receive the witness of John the Baptist. And so that's what what John did, right? He identified Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb, and Son of God. His testimony matters because it is is like legal witness-bearing, pointing the way for us that we might know Jesus, which is the goal of this whole book. So that's what John did and why it matters. He's pointing the way, pointing out who Jesus is. Third, how are we to respond? You know, there are lots of events in life, uh, lots of things that go unnoticed, There are lots of things in life that don't move us in any way. Uh, We watch movies. We're not moved to action because of them. Uh, We listen to the news often, and we're not moved in any way. Uh, Sometimes we hear the plight of neighbors and friends, and we may offer sympathy, but fundamentally our actions don't change. But if God has broken into time and space in the person of Jesus, if John's witness is true, we cannot remain unmoved. So we're going to slow down uh, here for just a minute, and you can see uh, in the outline there are four ways to respond. There are certainly others, uh, but four that grow out of this text. And the first is prepare your heart. Uh, John comes, he says in verse 23, as the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And and we've already read some of that, uh, some more of the context of Isaiah 40, but I'm going to read it again, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, uh, where Isaiah says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, Isaiah's prophecy is first and foremost about the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's the call to prepare the way. The the call to prepare the way is is to to make a road in the desert. 
literally, a, a road from Babylon to Jerusalem so that God can bring his people home. Now, God doesn't need people to go before him. He can bring his people home, whatever the road conditions might be. But the point is to get ready because God is on his way. Now, how was John the Baptist calling people in his day to get ready? Well, he came baptizing. That's, that's why his name is John the Baptist. And baptism was a ritual purification for the removal of sins. It was the acknowledgement that I am sinful and must be washed. And John was calling the Jewish people to repent. He was saying, you may be in the land, but your hearts are far from God. Prepare a highway in your heart, as it were. Now, why is that necessary? Well, what John is, is not saying, and when the scriptures call for repentance elsewhere, what they are not saying is this. They're not saying, you better get your act together before Jesus comes. Uh, you better clean up the mess before Jesus comes home, right, or you're going to be in big trouble. Uh, the, the, the scriptures are not saying, you better take a, take a shower and clean up before uh, your date comes so she will like you, right, as if to prepare your heart was uh, to get rid of all the sin that was there so that when Jesus comes, he finds you attractive. No. You can't get rid of your sin without Jesus. That's what John says, right? Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world. So what does it mean then to prepare the way? Uh, well, when we are living in sin, uh, when we are holding on to some sin or finding our identity in some sin, uh, when Jesus comes, we, we don't see him for who he is. Uh, the way is blocked, as it were. We, we, um, we are, are spiritually blind because our sin blocks our eyesight, and, and while we certainly can't get rid of our, our sins, right, repentance is like, uh, is the Spirit's way of doing cataract surgery on us. We confess sin for what it is, which helps us to see Jesus for who he is. When we acknowledge our sin in that same breath, we acknowledge our need for a Savior. Our hearts are ready for Jesus. So John called the people to prepare the way for the Lord through repentance of sin, and we must do the same. Uh, not just once, of course, but every day, uh, prepare our hearts through repentance. So what sins in your life do you need to be rid of? Uh, do you realize that unrepented sin obscures your vision of Jesus? Repent of them, right? Right now, there, there's no need to wait, right? Just go to God, see your sin, own your sin, confess your sin, and then look to Jesus. Which brings us to the next point, open your eyes. John says in verse 29, behold uh, to behold is to, to look, uh, to listen even, to pay attention. Listen up, John says. Open your eyes and see Jesus. And of course, this is what John the Evangelist wants us to do as well. He wants us to see Jesus. That's why he's writing his book. He says toward the end of the book in John 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right. Who, who is this Jesus uh, that, that these Johns want us to see? Well, verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you read through the Bible, if you read through the Old Testament in particular, there are lots of lambs. Uh, there are lambs dotted all over the story. Uh, at the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. At the Passover, Israel was to take a lamb and smear its blood over the doorpost so the angel of death would pass by. Daily in the temple, morning and evening, a lamb was offered as a whole burnt offering. Why? So that God might dwell in the midst of his people. 
that they might know him and see his glory. We saw that in the Exodus 29 passage read earlier. Well, here comes Jesus, the image of God, the the glory as of the only Son of the Father, and he has come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Now, how much does John understand here? Probably not as much as we do. Uh, Maybe John thought this was just, just an image. Jesus will take away our sin as the Old Testament lambs took away sin. But did he realize that Jesus would do that just as they, by dying in the place of his people? Uh, who knows? Uh, maybe, m- maybe not, but it doesn't really matter, right? John, uh, in the gospel, will record other times where people prophesy who clearly don't understand the implications of their words. John knew enough. He knew enough to point to Jesus and boldly proclaim in obedience to the Father, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came not to make forgiveness possible, but to remove sin. Uh, not, Not the sin of Israel only, but the sin of the world, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. John did know something of how Jesus would accomplish this. Verse 33, the Father told him, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. If water baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, then spirit baptism, of course, must go even further, right? It is the reality to which the sign only pointed. Jesus is the one who takes away sin and pours out his spirit. Verses 32 and 33 here are the first mention of the spirit in John, but this is a theme that we will see throughout the book of John. The spirit keeps coming up again and again, that Jesus is the spirit bringer. He receives the Spirit, as John saw, so that he might pour out the Spirit, so that we might be drawn near to the Father. And this is what we all need, right? This this world is fundamentally broken. Uh, On our own, we don't stand in right relationship to God. We have trouble controlling our own actions, much less our hearts, our thoughts, our emotions. We are both guilty and sinful. What do we need? We need our guilt taken away. We need the Spirit to make us new. We need both the guilt and the power of sin removed. And this is what Jesus came to do. Do you see Jesus? Are your eyes open to who he is? Do you see Jesus for who he is? He is the sin remover and the spirit bringer. Receive him and believe in him, as John said back in verse 12. And your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Think for just a moment of the anxiety-removing, hope-bringing nature of Jesus' work, right? Sins removed means guilt removed, means fear removed, means anxiety removed. Our Father loves us and cares for us and delights in us. No more need of fear. No more need of worry. Our Father who loves us is going to care for us. The gift of the Spirit means hope for this moment. Right now, God is at work in your life by His Spirit. Uh, You're not stuck in sin, however you may feel. You're not stuck in sinful patterns and in habits and addictions. God is at work in you to transform you by his spirit. He will finish his work. He's not going to abandon you. He has given you his spirit to work in you even now. When guilt and fear and anxiety and hopelessness rear their ugly heads, open your eyes to see Jesus and rest in him, the one who comes to remove sin and bring the spirit. So prepare your heart. Open your eyes. Third, put him first. John uh, was actually nothing if not humble. He counted himself as not worthy to be Jesus' servant. He said, uh, though he comes after me, he ranks before me because he was before me. 
John recognizes that he is not first. Life is not about him. He points away from himself and toward Jesus. And while we can't be who John was, and we can't do exactly what John did, we can imitate his humility. We can recognize that while, me, uh, <clears throat> while we may not be, um, while we may not be anyone in particular, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who baptizes with the Spirit. He is the Son of God, and we can orient our lives around Him. You know, in so many situations, I end up putting myself first, right? That, that becomes obvious every time I grumble or every time I'm discontent or every time I, I manipulate and conspire to get my way, every time I sin in order to get what I want. All that shows I think life is about me. I consider myself of greater rank and worth than Jesus. But when I stop and open my eyes and consider Jesus, there is no question. He is first. I'm not even second. I am but an unworthy servant. At best, I can only do what I ought, as Jesus said elsewhere. What are you putting before Jesus? Maybe it's yourself, your desires, your plans, your, your quote, needs. Maybe it's someone else. You know, John was a fiery, prophetic teacher. It is possible that some of his disciples kept following him long after he died and never made the transition to following Jesus. John the evangelist wants them to know, John the Baptist put it away from himself. There's, of course, the same danger, uh, maybe you've seen it, in the church uh, of people who follow a pastor or people who follow a preacher or people who follow a teacher. And it's a danger for lots of reasons, right? When you hinge your commitment uh, or your church attendance or your faith on a person, what happens when that person fails? Do not hinge your faith, right, to a celebrity preacher. Do not hinge your faith to your local pastor. Definitely don't hinge your faith to me, Every pastor, every preacher, every teacher will fail you at some point. They're sinners just like you. Put Christ first. Prepare your hearts. Open your eyes. Put him first. And finally, introduce others. Again, we can't do exactly what John did. Uh, we can't introduce Jesus to the world in the way that John did. Uh, we don't have a word from God that allows us to identify Jesus for the first time to the masses. But we do have God's word. We do have the Bible, and we do have the testimony of people like John the Baptist and John the Evangelist and the Samaritan woman and more, and we can point to their testimony and introduce others to Jesus. John here is the, the prototypical witness, right? He was the first to witness to Jesus, as it were, and any other witness is dependent on his. But that just means that, that we don't have to wait around for a voice from heaven, right? We can point people to Jesus in the scriptures. Here he is. Right? Go and tell others. You don't have to rely on your personality, your wisdom, your ingenuity. Just point them to the scriptures. Point them to God's witness of his own son in the Bible. Here is what you need. He is what the world needs. These last two points come together in a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That is what, on some level, we are all called to do, right? Not point to ourselves, but point people to Jesus as Lord and back that up with lives of service for Jesus' sake. Prepare your heart, open your eyes, put him first, and introduce others to Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the witness of John the Baptist pointing out Jesus the Messiah. We thank you for his witness and John the Evangelist's witness and the many others who bore eyewitness testimony to Jesus, both in his incarnation and life and ultimately in his death and in his resurrection. Father, help us to rest in, uh, in who Jesus is because we believe their testimony. And help us to then put Jesus first and introduce others to him as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.